United Methodist is a new podcast that looks at issues facing Utah from a mathematical perspective. Today on United Methodist, we will speak with Dr. Peter Mahoney concerning cougar population modeling in Utah. Hey, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here, Peter. Thank you for having me, Cody. Okay, so let's start pretty simple. How large are the populations of coyotes and mountain lions in Utah? And can you give us a sense of their uh, distribution in the state? Yes. Uh, well, to the first question, anyway, it's often difficult to survey and assess essentially how large these populations of carnivores are. Uh, the reason are manifold, but the primary one happens to be the fact that these animals are generally pretty elusive and difficult to spot and, and, and monitor, and therefore uh, can be quite difficult to determine what those population sizes are. Um, as far as ballpark estimates, uh, it, it can be difficult to even pro- uh, provide you with a ballpark estimate. We can say, though, that uh, harvested on an annual basis anyways, we, we have about 12,000, 14,000 coyotes harvested on an annual basis, which probably represents less than 10% of the overall statewide population. Um, as far as cougars, on the other hand, that is a much more difficult uh, answer to get at, but we're probably on the order of, you know, three to 6,000, if not a little bit more. Okay, so are they uh, uniformly distributed uh, in the state, or do you see them more in the southern or northern regions, or, or can you even say that? Now, that's an excellent question, uh, and it really comes down to the ecology of the respective species. So for coyotes in particular, uh, they're ha- what we call habitat generalists, meaning that they essentially can occupy almost any type of habitat on the landscape. So as habitat generalists, though, uh, they can occupy a large variety of habitats, and those habitats then determine essentially the densities with which those animals occur in those areas. So though coyotes literally can be found in almost any habitat type that Utah has to offer, um, what we might see is, say, shifts in the densities of those animals in a given area based on the resource needs uh, uh, in those locations. Uh, mountain lions, on the other hand, are a little bit more specialized, and and as their name suggests, uh, they often occupy the foothills and the mountainous regions of, of Utah, um, and they typically are searching for areas where they have a high uh, density of prey. So their primary prey, in this case, that they're often keying in on here in Utah, um, are in fact uh, largely mule deer, which compose probably about two thirds of their diet. And the remaining third then is composed of uh, largely uh, Rocky Mountain elk, but then also a smattering of smaller mammal or mammalian prey, such as beaver, coyote, rabbit, uh, etc. Okay, so the the two species do have some uh, prey in common. Is that correct? That is true. That is true. Um, and with with coyote specifically, I didn't really address the, the prey needs there, but they. You know, can eat essentially almost anything from anthropogenic subsidies, and those are basically food items that are provided via humans. Uh, so they can capitalize on, say, uh, garbage and waste produced in, in urban and extra-urban areas. But they can also then uh, kill and prey upon, rather, larger uh, hooved prey, such as deer and elk, uh, what we often refer to as ungulates, um, uh, but those periods where they might take those larger prey are heavily dependent upon the conditions, uh, not only of the animal themselves, the prey themselves, but also the environmental conditions, uh, you know, in play. So, for example, coyotes being a much smaller animal will largely take mule deer when they're really quite young, so they're recently born, or when they're 
in the older age classes where perhaps, you know, they're in poor physical condition and are susceptible to predation by the smaller canid. Um, so where we see overlap in terms of prey between the two species, between, say, coyotes and mountain lions, um, and by the way, I use mountain lions interchangeably with cougars and puma, all three of which are commonly used by folks in the West but represent the same species. Um, but as far as prey overlap between cougars and coyotes, uh, it does occur, and it's largely with regards to these larger prey items. Um, but then there's also an added element where we see some overlap, and that is coyotes like to steal prey from other predators. Uh, cougars are not unique in this regard. So a lot of times where we see some conflict arise is when coyotes try to capitalize on a kill made by a cougar. Uh, and that comes, of course, at a significant amount of risk to that coyote. Um, but, uh, but it's certainly a relatively uh, large large influx of, of calories that, that the, coyotes like to, the coyotes like to capitalize on where possible. Hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the modeling you use uh, to look at these interactions. So I'm assuming part is in the field, maybe GPS tagging, and then there's also this computer simulation element. So could you give us a sense of how much of each you're doing and how they connect? Yes, in fact, um, much of what we do nowadays, anyways, heavily depends upon various technologies that allow us to monitor animals, but also to classify or quantify the landscape. Um, and so what you're referring to is the use of what we call global positioning system-based GPS collars uh, that allow us to essentially track the movements and the locations of the animals that we have collared. Um, so in the case of my dissertation, dissertation work in, in South Central Utah, what we did is we deployed collars, GPS collars, on coyotes, on uh, mountain lions, on deer, on elk, um, and, and we basically just used those collars to, to monitor where these animals were at any given point, and from that we can infer quite a bit about their ecology and their behavior. Um, as a case in point, we can look at essentially the areas that they're using on the landscape, you know, and, and we use all sorts of uh, ground-based uh, survey work to determine essentially where they're at, but also we capitalize on the use of satellite technology and satellite imagery that allows us to remotely get, an in, get some information or infer some information with regards to what kinds of uh, elevation they might be occupying, the types of terrain in terms of ruggedness, but also land cover classifications related to, say, what types of vegetative communities are present. Are they in the trees or are they in the open sagebrush or grasslands um, throughout Utah? Um, and so to do this in, in, a, in a more rigorous way, we capitalize on the use of models. Um, and one model that we happen to use quite regularly, it's actually a broad family of models referred to as resource selection functions. Uh, but the type of statistics the type of statistics and mathematics that we use to to use this is really dependent upon the question. But one of the most commonly one we use, commonly used model, is in fact uh, a logistic regression model. Um, and in this case, it's just a generalized form of linear model that we often uh, learn about uh, as far back as say our high school years, uh, and then into into college. Uh, but but in this case, these models, what we do is we try to basically compare you know, what they're using on the landscape with what is available to them. So we're basically comparing the proportions of use points that, say, fall in a forested area versus the proportions of forest available to them on the landscape. And if we see a shift, say, in the use points that are disproportionate to what's available on the landscape, 
this is what we then call um, selection and and selection and or avoidance. So if it's a greater use than what's available, it's called selection. If it's if it's um, uh, used less than what's available in the landscape, it's what we call avoidance. And so we can infer some things about what they need on the landscape to persist, but also things that might be a potential risk to them, um, such as, you know, are they using roadways or are they avoiding human development and, and other factors that come into play in the ecology of these animals. Mm. One of the last questions I wanted to ask you today is, you've got a new project that looks at climate change and um, Arctic animals. Could you give us a, a little bit of a sense of where that project's going? Yeah, so this is part of, uh, believe it or not, NASA funds wildlife research, which always surprises folks when I, when I talk about this current work. But uh, we're actually operating on a, a, on a much broader project known as ABOVE, which is the Arctic Boreal Vulnerability Experiment. And it's a project funded by NASA. Um, to basically look at a whole, whole variety of things. But the, the specific project that we're working on is, is actually um, a subset project known as Animals on the Move. And it's been set up with the intent of utilizing or capitalizing on a lot of the resources that NASA has at their disposal to look at essentially climate impacts on animal movement. Um, so this is part of a larger collaborative with, with Columbia University, University of Idaho, University of Washington, um, uh, University of Montana, a variety of institutions. And basically what we're interested in, in is how landscape change and climate translate to, um, you know, both population changes with respect, with respect to large mammals, uh, but also shifts in the behavior of these species in response to these overall changes. And so uh, some of the things that we're currently working on, for example, are looking at the impact of well, quantifying, for example, snow and snow quality and snow conditions and how this ultimately influences the movement of these animals. Um, and, and this becomes important. Well, yes, certainly in the Arctic we have a lot of snow, but uh, we are expected actually to see um, uh, uh, shorter winters uh, but more severe springs, which will probably translate to more severe snowfalls in the spring, uh, which can have energetic impacts and ultimately uh, influence the population growth of a variety of species throughout uh, these northern latitudes. Um, so that's where we're starting, but eventually we'll be going to uh, towards exploring impacts on moose, caribou, uh, migrations of the respective species, and then ultimately uh, we'll be looking at how then carnivores, wolves, grizzly bears, um, uh, and, and in fact some, a variety of other carnivores as well, uh, and, their, and their influence, uh, uh, sorry, and how they're influenced by the shifts in, say, their prey base uh, in response to climate change. Any advice for young people in Utah interested in math, science, or, or maybe even interactions between coyotes and cougars? Well, yes. I, I guess what I would certainly um, recommend, of course, is to, you know, I know at times these math courses can be challenging from high school onwards, uh, but to muscle through and, and to take interest and recognize, hopefully, that that much of what we do nowadays uh, often draws upon insights that we learn through this coursework. Um, and, and, you know, much of science is heavily dependent upon uh, that, that math skill set being developed at early stages um, so that we can essentially in, in, uh, study and inform our, uh, you know, better inform our understanding anyways uh, of, of what, is, what, is, what is ultimately driving these ecological systems um, in important and relevant ways. Um, <laughs> I didn't really address that as well as I probably could or should. Um, That's okay. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show, 
and have a nice day. Thanks for having me, Tony. Yep. Bye-bye. United Methodist is affiliated with KRCL in Salt Lake City.